Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook on driving innovation, how to foster a culture of innovation within your team. In it, you'll discover how to set a context for innovation, why culture matters and how you can influence it, what you can do to foster innovation within your team, and how you can structure processes that cultivate innovation. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod three zero nine. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I'm really excited about today's guest. I had so much fun getting to know her a bit last week, and I think you guys are going to enjoy learning from her. She is the founder and CEO of Emerging Media Incorporated, which is an award-winning innovation communications consultancy. She's a prolific speaker, a trainer, a coach, and a consultant, and she serves as a mentor at multiple accelerators, so she really loves to guide people and help them learn. She's also a contributor to the New York Business Journal Leadership Trust, and I said that super awkwardly. Um, She is based here in New York. Welcome to the show, Susan Lindner. Thank you so much for having me, Elizabeth. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So thank you for being here. Um, Before we jump in to a lot of context, I just basically read off your resume, but um, (laughs) that's not who you are. So I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. You could maybe share a bit about um, the journey to where you are today or kind of how you developed the passion for what it is that you're doing. You know, Elizabeth, I feel like my story is so akin to so many other stories, probably of your listeners. I'm sure many of them decided to hitchhike through Central America during two wars in that region, Mm, or uh uh, decided to move to Thailand and work in brothels doing AIDS education with prostitutes and their customers, or um, (laughs) perhaps, you know, uh, decide halfway through one's career after giving talks to maybe 600 companies that one day they might like to charge for that opportunity and see what sales could be generated from a podium rather than just a polycom. (laughs) Definitely the classic American story. Classic American story. You know, every little girl's dream. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, my background is a a little bit varied. So I am an anthropologist by training. Um, I studied anthropology and religion in college. And then I feel like I have been using those studies every day. And it turned out that my anthropology has served me to work on a global basis by constantly taking in and understanding not just other cultures, but also sales cultures and Mm. cultures and storytelling cultures that allow people to communicate better in order to do business together. And the religion part of it is, um, you know, my interest in religion and studying religion in college was I was absolutely blown away by the prophets. And for me, they were my introduction to innovation. Mm-hmm. They were the guys who were challenging the status quo long before we talked about Steve Jobs doing it, right? We we're talking about taking on structures of race, class, um, religion, economics, um, so many different structures that the prophets um, were upsetting. Mm-hmm. I saw as the original revolutionaries. And, um, and I was also fascinated with how the prophets moved the word around the world, mm-hmm. how 5,000 years later, you know, in the case of um, original Judaism, we're still telling the stories of the Old Testament today, 5,000 years later. What was in those stories, aside mm-hmm. from a little from upstairs, probably, um, that got these stories to move around the world and to stick and as a marketer, um, 
understanding and unlocking the secrets of the stories of the prophets and translating them into the boardroom um, is my passion today. So anyone who ever told me anthropology, what a waste, <laughs> you know, is, um, is I'm so glad I get to use it every day in my work. Absolutely. I can, I can hear it in your voice. And it actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, when I think from a very, very, very basic understanding of anthropology, I a lot of times think about um, the stories that cultures have and what those stories reflect about their history, about their values. Uh, and that is such a, such a generally applicable um, principle that, that so many of us could learn from really taking a deep dive and trying to understand kind of where people are coming from and what matters to them and um, and how that comes out in behavior, in their impressions of the world around them. And so um, I can really see how that builds a foundation for a lot of the work that you do. Yeah, it's a huge part of what I do. And it's the foundation of the processes that I've created around innovation storytelling as well. Definitely. And then what you were saying about um, about the stories uh, from the prophets and from various faith traditions, you know, when you think about the the primary faith traditions that we have and how old they are. Mm. Um, and like you said, to the fact that that you have little kids who um, were recording on a Monday, you know, yesterday might have been sitting in church on Sunday or or, um, you know, Saturday um, in synagogue or, or whatever it might be and um, hearing stories and it's the same stories that their parents heard and their grandparents heard and ancestors, you know, all the way back thousands of years. That's such an incredibly powerful concept. And, you know, we wish that we could tell stories that would stick even, you know, a hundredth um, to that level. So it's a it's a really powerful um, example to, to think about. Yeah, you know, and it's a really important message for business leaders is that the reason why we use stories in business is because story is a memory making device. When we give people columns of statistics or PowerPoint charts, and we ask them in a meeting to remember these things and, um, you know, to leave and actually act on those numbers that we just presented in a meeting, Stanford university, the research there has shown us that the average person forgets those numbers and stats within six minutes of leaving the meeting. <laughs> Six minutes. Now, if you wrapped those concepts, if you wrap those statistics, those figures, as you've been killing yourself in your pivot tables, um, you would be 22, your listener would be 22 times more likely to remember your content. Mm -hmm. so nothing else, you know, to the point of what you were talking about with the stories of the prophets. The reason that they didn't give us, you know, this is how many souls go to heaven, right? This is how many actually, like, we need to actually wrap the Ten Commandments in story for us to remember them. Mm. And so when we learn what were those stories and how those stories were constructed, we can apply those same principles to business to get our teams to not only remember them, but even more importantly, spread them. Absolutely. Because great innovation storytelling always builds in momentum. Innovation needs movement in order to get the rest of society to move or your company to move or a prospect to move. So great stories need momentum. And that's another thing that the prophets did is they figured out how to get a story, not just to stick, but to move. Absolutely. 
the difference between um, a fan who enjoys something and is happy about it and a raving fan who can't stop talking about it to everybody around them. And, um, you know, it's it's great to provide a, a good experience to one person and get one person to understand something, but that's not going to go very far. Um, so that, that call to action within the story. Now, um, I know you work specifically on an idea called innovation storytelling. So I'd love if we could just introduce that concept to our listeners. And that's where I think we're going to spend a lot of our time today. Fantastic, because that's my favorite neighborhood to hang out in is innovation storytelling. (laughs) Um, So innovation storytelling starts with the premise that you have an innovation, number one, you are Mm -hmm. doing something that is different from what is your block and tackle quarterly, um, your quarterly revenue generating uh, product or service. And you're introducing a product or service or process that's going to take people out of their comfort zone. And, mm-hmm. um, and so with that, um, you need recognizing, right, first and foremost, that any kind of change is terrifying, mm-hmm. is painful, is agony. And I mean this in like the simplest of senses, like when you go into the supermarket and your brand of vanilla ice cream is not on the shelf. Ugh. When the haagen is out, you are unhappy. <laughs> what would you do? Exactly. I mean, just like, you know, when you forget your toothpaste when you're on a business trip and they give you Colgate and you're a Crest person, ugh. you know, it's like, oh, so the mere fact of change is is agony, right? It also happens to be the first tenet of Buddhism. You know, mm-hmm. life is suffering because we wish that life would not change. Mm. And each time it changes, it's painful. Life is suffering because we change. So recognize that as a given when you work in innovation. That is the baseline. And anytime you try to introduce a change, know that it is absolutely positively inflicting pain on the listener mm-hmm. by virtue of just shifting. Even if it's casual Fridays, yay. Now I have to figure out what to wear on casual Fridays. Great. You know, <laughs> that's a whole shift in its own, right? Definitely. So, so innovation storytelling starts with that premise. Number one, change, change is painful to the listener. And then for the innovation storyteller, it's really important to be empathetic to that mm-hmm. listener. And we do that shift by number one, understanding where the pain lies um, here in a place like New York, we ask them, where are they bleeding from the neck? Where is it most painful um, in order to establish empathy? And we become really, really good listeners for the pain and also for the the opportunities that our innovation will provide. Absolutely. So when we get into the innovation storytelling neighborhood, it starts with really empathetic listening. Great storytellers are great listeners, Mm. right? I mean, it's why the prophets understood how in pain everyone was that they needed a change. And this was the time for that change. These guys arise in a particular time and context. So the other part of innovation storytelling is now recognizing and communicating that innovation at its heart brings with it goodwill. Mm. That your intention with an innovation is to make someone's life better. And in a business context, that often sounds like we save you time, we save you money, we make you more productive, right? Virtually Mm -hmm. any B2B service, that's the goal. Save time, save money, make you more productive. Great. What are people doing 
with all the time, money, and productivity that they are amassing thanks to your innovation? What will uh-huh. they do with it? Because it's the qualities on the other side of that save time, save money, make you more productive. That is the gold around innovation storytelling. Tell me how I'm going to make your life better, not just at the company, but your life. Do I get to go home at five o'clock? Do I get to see my kid's soccer game? Do I not have to worry about my cybersecurity alarms going off on the network um, all weekend long and I actually get to relax? Do I actually get to take a vacation? Like these are the other sides of what innovation brings to people that we don't embrace fully. Sometimes we're just so focused on what the immediate return is that we don't embrace the full factor of goodwill that we're ushering into the world. That's why we innovate. That's why we keep bringing new things into our businesses and our communities is the hope that we'll make something better. Absolutely. And when I think through the the dozens of companies I've worked with over the years and the stories that I remember that they told, not our stories about working with them, but their stories, the ones that stick with me, like you said, are the ones that that reflected the pain that they were able to um, alleviate for their clients that named the actual comfort and help and opportunity that they were able to provide. And, you know, from uh, a wealth manager who was working with a widow who had never managed her money on her own and came in with a level of stress and anxiety that was just loaded on top of her grief at losing her husband very unexpectedly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being able to give her peace and comfort so that she could grieve without the stress of thinking about money. Mm-hmm. I, I cried literally in a, in a training and I'm tearing up thinking about it because mm-hmm. I could see the value that they were providing in the work. And to, uh, you know, I, I've got dozens just at the top of my head. And if it sticks in me, a consultant that was working with that company, you know, I'm not even a client who, who had to experience that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really tell just the value of these stories and how different it is from, you know, we can save you 30%. <laughs> And the answer is, you know, the, the reality is if you just sell based on saves time, saves money, makes you more productive, that is the definition of a B2B product or service, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I hire an accountant so I don't have to study, I don't have to get a degree in accounting, right? So that saved me four years of my life so somebody else can do my taxes for me, <laughs> right? So, I mean, if we think about it in that way, that is the fundamentals of any B2B product or service, that's table stakes. So if you're actually innovating, if you're doing something so unique and different, you have to paint a picture of a future Mm. that the prospect today cannot see. Yes. So it's your job to paint a picture of heaven. And that doesn't necessarily include your product or service. It's getting really deep on the listening around what what my customer really needs and then painting a picture of how attainable heaven really is for that prospect, how close they are to getting there. And when you both agree about, excuse me, the hell the current you're, you're currently in mm-hmm. and the heaven that you could get to, then and you're just steps away, your product is a much easier is a much easier purchase because they can already envision what heaven looks like. 
So if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, it's the difference between, let's use your example of an accountant, because I think that's one that, that people might find is a little boring, right? Um, mm-hmm. Although I was two classes away from an accounting major, so I really can't, <laughs> I can't say much. Um, but um, it's the difference between an accountant coming to you and saying, I'm going to save you 30% of the time that it takes you to process your taxes. And instead of bringing me a box of receipts, you're going to be able to do this. Um, and that's one story. And certainly there's there's value in that to them painting a picture of on April 15th, you are going to be on vacation and you're not even going to know what day it is on the calendar because you didn't have to worry about your taxes. And you'll be able to you know, spend the money that you need to spend and um, process, you know, those expenses, those receipts in such a way that you don't even have to think about it. Um, But the information that you need to make decisions is presented to you. So you're not worried when you're, um, when you're making business investment decisions. And you're not talking in that story about the accountant and about the work that they're doing. Instead, you're really creating that idea for the client. Obviously, this is not an innovation example. So it's it's very easy to, to understand the value. But is that kind of the idea of what you're talking about here? Yes. And, you know, allow them to picture what life would look like, you know, without the headaches associated with it. What would they be doing otherwise? What else would they be doing with their time? So I, I really, um, a lot of what we've been talking about here. I think people can understand within the context in general of storytelling, which is something we all know we could we could be better at. Um, but you're introducing some key principles of how it's specifically relevant in an environment of innovation. So I'd like to drill down on that um, and talk a bit about why innovation storytelling is so important. I think you already started to touch on it, that you're painting a picture of something different. Um, you know, this isn't just, I'm telling a story about the great work we've done in the past. Do you want that same work done for you? This is a, this is a different situation, right? So what right. are some of the, the unique aspects of why innovation storytelling is so important? Yeah. So let's take a look. You know, there are five critical components or essential elements of innovation storytelling and how it works. And again, these are lessons that we've called from the prophets the, themselves, some of the greatest viral marketers, as I like to refer to them of all time. Um, and they start these five steps. So the first step in innovation storytelling is actually looking backwards, is history, is determining what is the shared history that the prospect and I have together that we both draw from. So what is it that we have in common? So you may think of it as that small talk, that setting the stage or whatever you may refer to it as, but it's also a shared history of where do we see eye to eye on things? Because if I can't establish a shared history together, I will not be getting in the car and moving into the future with you. Mm-hmm. So let's make sure what the foundation looks like. And if you look at the prophets, right? I mean, Jesus didn't throw out Judaism, right? His his colleagues refer to him as rabbi. He was, you know, looking to make a shift mm-hmm. with that which was going on now and to see things through a new light. But it started with a recognition of where we all come from, the days on the calendar, right? All of those rituals that we share in together. So think about with your prospect, what do we have in common? Where are those unique commonalities first and foremost? Set the foundation. Step number two is now from that, call out the core values. What are the values that we share together and our shared purpose? 
is step two. It's values and purpose. So what are those core values that we believe in? And they can be anything. I mean, so if, if I'm JP Morgan, you know, the core values that I might have are trust and integrity and performance and returns. If I'm the wolf of Wall Street, you know, my core values may be cocaine and prostitute. That may be, <laughs> that may very well be the core values. I'm not here to judge either. I'm just here to say, can we recognize the values that my prospect and I share that will essentially provide the vehicle for moving forward? And the purpose, what is the direction? That's the pathway we're going to take down moving forward. What's our shared purpose, our intention together of moving into a future, into what feels like the unknown for the prospect? What's the purpose? So once we've established that, Mm-hmm. Do we want to get to that next place together, that picture of heaven? Now we need to actually create the message. What is it that we're going to say to the prospect that helps them make the shift and frankly reinforces the fact that we cannot go back to the status quo. We can't continue mm-hmm. to do things the old fashioned way anymore because it is no longer serving our purpose. Mm-hmm. So this is the part where we ask the prospect to burn all boats. It's where we go from an eye for an eye to turn the other cheek. Mm -hmm. And we can't go back anymore. So what is the likelihood of me returning to a BlackBerry after using an iPhone? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Zero. (laughs) Definitely. Zero. So um, anyway... The um, So once we get to that message, and this is where your marketing brain kicks in, you want to create a message that is step four now filled with viral language. It is not something that's not, that isn't just memorable, um, but it's also mobile. Mm-hmm. So think about the wording that you want to use. And some of the greatest orators of our time, also other prophets, but probably more recent ones, when you think about... Frederick Douglass, the founding fathers, Hamilton, Jefferson, Washington, Lincoln, um, and all the way down to great business leaders like the Steve Jobs of the world um, and how they communicate. Viral language, you know, a thousand songs in your pocket is not something that's not only easily memorable, easily remembered, but it's also easy to share. Mm -hmm. So alliteration is really helpful you know, really powerful verbs, action verbs to get the message moving is is quintessential to great innovation storytelling. And the last piece, step five, is now amassing your early adopters. Is who are those people in the meeting who are shaking their head and agreeing with you who will take the message forward into the world? And I think that was the other thing that was fascinating me about the prophets. It was, you know, 12 guys sitting together in the desert or in the forest or, Um, You know, Bedouins traipsing across the desert in Muhammad's case, right? And then spreading that word and and for Muhammad would wind up creating, you know, an entire empire Mm. power of his words. This is, this was a prophet who was illiterate, who received this, you know, divine inspiration and had other people write it down for him. Uh, Humble caravan camel driver, right? I mean, this was where it began. And so, but it started with the power of phenomenal language and other people who would take the word forward. 
And for us as marketers, you know, there's a lot of trial and error. It's the beginning of A-B testing, right, mm-hmm. back in the biblical age. But, <laughs> but this is how it works. And we see what lands and then what moves and gets other people to move it. So you don't have to be the only one saying it anymore. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So I want to I wanna jump back to some of those, those first two, especially first, um, the idea of finding the shared history, the core values and the shared purpose. And I love that you gave that example of the difference between J.P. Morgan Chase and Wolf of Wall Street, because let's say you have a client that is as different from you as Wolf of Wall Street is, right? And yep. what what they value and what's important to them is, you know, cocaine, prostitutes, whatever that might be. Um, there, you could probably still find a shared value in that, right? They mm-hmm. like um, they like fun, they like excitement, they value, um, you know time to um, study their hobbies and, and dive into them, whatever it might be. Um, you can, with somebody that that maybe doesn't have a lot of shared history with you, still have an alignment on core values that you're both really committed to, even though the specific activities that they take to live out those values might not be the ones that you would take. That's right. It's, find- it's absolutely true. <laughs> and I find that really fascinating too, because again, if you, if you look back to... Um, faith traditions, they they typically are all about um, you're evangelizing as a as somebody who participates in the faith tradition to people who do not. And so by default, they're not going to have some of the same, um, you know, lifestyle choices that you have. Uh, certainly <laughs> <Lifestyle choices. laughs> trying to trying to express this in a way that's appropriate. But, um, you know, if, if you're only talking to people who are already exactly the same as you, they don't need to hear from you. And it's that same principle when it comes to um, in business, right? If, if you had people who had the exact same history and the exact same core values and purpose, they might have come up with that innovation on their own. So you're finding the alignment that's helping them kind of st- take a step ahead and discover the solution that you found that they wouldn't have even thought of. Right. And I mean, you know, initially you are going to convert those with like minds and like hearts, but mm-hmm. as the message spreads, right. When we think about the, uh, when we think about the um, prophets and their apostles, right. Spreading the word around the world, uh, they were, traveling into all different cultures and territories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like our products and services that we want to spread to different markets, it's becoming really attuned to um, what those other cultures are so we can express those messages appropriately and modify them so that people can really take them in and take them in as their own and hopefully spread them. Because 12 guys without Twitter today are not going to make a big impact. <laughs> and, and certainly not if they don't modify the message with each new culture and each new market that they, that they attend to. So yeah, really, really important. And to not be judgmental, right? I mean, certainly you look at the prophets, every form of humanity was attracted to following them. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's not necessarily, a, it may be at first about getting the early adopters on board, but over time we are going to need to hit the mass market with our innovation. Absolutely. Definitely. So um, I'd like to spend some time then talking about getting into maybe some of the more mechanics, right? We've been talking big picture and certainly sharing that that five-step model makes a lot of sense. But I would imagine that when leaders 
are thinking about innovation storytelling, um, there are some challenge, so challenges that they might encounter. And I know you have extensive experience. You kind of started your career in this work um, with startups and very entrepreneurial companies, and you've transitioned over time into working with innovation leaders, but within kind of fortune companies. So uh, a bit of a different um, mindset, I would think. So what are some of the the specific challenges that you find that they're running into um, when it comes to innovation storytelling, whether it's the same in both of those environments or whether there are maybe some different ones? And that is a classic Elizabeth, highly compound question. So my apologies. Love it. I will tease it apart and answer it one by one. So let's start, let's back it up a little bit. Innovation storytelling is a requirement because most innovators are great at innovating. They are not so great at telling their stories mm-hmm. for innovation. And if we think back to being, you know, back in college on campus, there was the humanities side of campus and there was the science side of campus and virtually neither, you know, the two would never meet. Mm-hmm. And the folks on the left, you know, on, on the left side of campus, I'm referring to, I'm thinking about my own campus on the humanities side of campus, not that it's politically left, is that, um, you know, it's creative and it's fanciful. And as people in the sciences would say, it's fluff. Mm-hmm. And that people uh, in the sciences would say it has to be empirical. It has to be factual. It has to be accurate, etc. We don't have space for any of that other stuff. And what's missing, unfortunately, is that the science side of campus has a really hard time communicating with the rest of not just campus, but the rest of the world, because they speak a different language altogether. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the ivory tower is intended to keep certain kinds of forms of communication pure and factual. It just becomes incredibly difficult when the rest of us want to get on board with your innovation and can't understand what you're talking about. Mm. So innovation storytelling is the bridge between the innovation and the market. Mm. And we can't get there without it. We just can't. So, you know, I was up at Corning Glass, um, a client of mine, and I had the good fortune of meeting the fractologists at Corning Glass. I didn't know what a fractologist was. For your listeners, fractology is the science of how things break. Okay. That's, you can take that out of the, the word itself. That's you awesome. Know your you know, six to eight-year-old now has a potential career path in yeah. fractology because you really want folks who understand how glass breaks working in a glass factory, right? Mm. <laughs> so these are the folks who determine whether or not when you get into an accident that the windshield pops out, that the glass bends or the glass breaks when your head hits it. And so when I first got there and I said, show me your presentations, The first two slides were spoken in the language of protons, neutrons, and electrons at how the glass functioned at the molecular level. Wow. (laughs) And while that's fascinating to the other scientists who speak physics, I do not speak physics. (laughs) And most people don't speak physics. And most people don't speak physics. So um, what what we did was to find a way to express that. And, you know, there was a lot of pushback initially. And they're like, but this is empirically what's going on in the windshield. And I said, you're right. And I don't care. Mm -hmm. 
And it was funny because, you know, Elizabeth, in that moment, one of the one of the team members there, she got a text and a picture from her sister that she had just become an aunt. Her sister had a baby in Ohio. Aww. And she was, you know, showing us the picture and it was, ooh ah, ooh ah, look at the baby. And then it went back to conversations about electrons. <laughs> and I said, Annie, can you show us that picture of your new niece? And she said, sure. And I go, wow, look at the endocrine system on that baby. How incredible. Feel <laughs> to have a spleen just like that. And I bet those neurons are collecting, you know, connecting and multiplying in ways, God, that we can't even fathom right now. I mean, gosh, that plasma <laughs> pulsing through her veins. Incredible. And they all looked at me like I had four heads. And I go, that's what you guys are doing. I go, we don't care about your electrons, right? We care about the baby, right? We don't care. We care about the windshield. We care about how the windshield makes our life better. And in your case, you're selling it to Tesla. What matters to Tesla? Do they care about the electron level within this windshield or do they care about what it's going to do for their customer? Do they care about how it's going to make the car more aerodynamic, how it's going to weigh less than the windshield they were using two years ago and increase gas, uh, you know, increase efficiency, fuel, um, excuse me, efficiency of the uh, electric car, right? The mm -hmm. battery efficiency, for example, with greater wind resistance. And so suddenly the light bulbs were going off like, oh, this isn't important. So we wound up decreasing these slides from 60 to 10. <laughs> 60 slides is a lot. <laughs> and 60 slides with science in them. I'm like, that's a whole semester's worth of study. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the other side of this, right, when you don't do innovation storytelling right, was how many hours were these PhDs spending time crafting PowerPoint presentations mm -hmm. that nobody was going to understand, that no one was going to remember, and that no one was going to spread the word about internally in order to get more funding, more time for their, their new blockbuster uh, windshield. And blockbuster is probably not the right word for a glass windshield. But, um, <laughs> but in any event, you know, storytelling, actually, a lot of people give me pushback. They're like, oh, it's so time consuming to think of a story and then write a story. And, and I said, it's actually the biggest time saver. Mm -hmm. Because when you can convey in five or six sentences, the goodwill that you're about to create, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for losing the value of the science. Mm -hmm. I'm advocating for presenting science in a way that matters to the listener, not to the creator. Absolutely. You know, putting it into a context. I can't help but tie the story that you just told back mm. to the principle you were sharing earlier about statistics and numbers. Mm. Because if you had said, you know, through my work with clients, I'm able to cut slides to a sixth of where they started. In the moment, I might be like, oh, that's really interesting. But when I'm picturing these PhDs who studied fractology, and I just can't even imagine, like, they must have fascinating personalities and interests that that's what they got into, right? And they've got these really complicated slides, and I'm picturing the meeting that you have. That story is going to stick with me, and I'm going to remember 60 to 10 because I can resonate with the rest of the story and the alignment that I experienced when I heard it. And so I'd imagine you do this kind of naturally because this is what you do with your clients. But it's so interesting to me that, um, you know, it, it's such a good example because when I think about glass, you know, it seems so boring, right? Mm -hmm. But I drop my iPhone a solid once a day. 
if not more often. <laughs> Don't we right? all? Okay. <laughs> and um, I think of the last time I shattered the screen, I had never done it before. And then I did it three times in one year. Super fun. But I was on vacation in Italy when I dropped my phone and shattered the screen. And that was super delightful because they can't even do a same day um, glass repair at the Apple store in Rome. At least they couldn't at the time. Um, and so I had to do the entire rest of my trip in Italy with a shattered phone screen. Um, and so to be able to tell a story about how, you know, I bet you drop your phone, right? And we all agree, yes, we drop our phones. It's crazy that we're holding this $1,000 piece of technology in our pockets and, and you know, on a pile of books that we're holding or whatever that it is. And somehow it's the one thing that drops. But um, to, to resonate around that and then talk about how, you know, we understand when they fall, where the points of impact are because we've, we've studied this and we know, you know, whatever it is about the science that makes it so it doesn't shatter in that situation. That's a lot more compelling than just we've studied impacts and, and look at our protons and neutrons. And so to even in just a simple example like that, to be able to connect it to a story, you know, um, or I mean, I've been in a car accident and I'm glad that the windshield didn't shatter and, you know, the side window that did break, it was in those little tiny pebbles that don't cut you. And so when I had to climb through the window to get out, I didn't have, you know, blood all over me. And uh, it's, it's a lot more powerful to think of those stories and those examples. I don't know the science of how that worked, but I'm glad that it existed. That's right. And so, um, you know, and especially true for your iPhone story. And by the way, Corning and its subsidiary Gorilla Glass makes mm-hmm. all the glass on your iPhone. So, you know, the thought of, you know, how that window turns into pebbles, right? It's, it's a pretty fascinating story in its own right. And yet it's not what's most important to you, right? What's important to you is that you're safe. Mm-hmm. So now Corning has taken the process even one step further and they are down to creating their now, now their meetings going from, you know, two hours, three hours with no consensus, by the way, uh-huh. on the other side of those meetings, right? What's the impact and the output out of those super long 60 slide meetings? Um, they now prepare a two page brief and then they have a one hour storytelling session mm. where the promoter of the innovation internally is responsible for telling the story around the innovation. And all the attendees are required to read a two-page briefing before coming in to the meeting so that they're prepared with questions. And this is the process by which innovation storytelling takes hold. Now, at Amazon, they use a different process. And any person promoting an innovation, so a new product, service, or process that will change, the innovator is required to write a press release as Mm. though it were launching that day. So the innovator is being asked to say, show me, right? Like we talked about what heaven looks like. Show me what it looks like on the day of launch. Write the launch press release for the innovation you are proposing that we start to think about funding. So take me to the last day. And the the uh, PR team is actually writing a book now called um, Start With The End. Mm. And it's about asking us as storytellers to think about what's the last chapter of the book? What does it look like when it launches? And that is what Jeff Bezos and his, the S team, they call it the senior team, um, reviews with red pens in the meeting live and then rips apart the press release to say, let's see if this will really work. Have you thought around all the corners and edges? And this is where the great stories are going to drive from. 
Absolutely. And I would imagine um, a really significant value at that point. And this is a, this is something that I would think a lot of, you know, every company is going to experience is an innovator is going to come in with their personal background, um, whether it's race, gender, field of study, um, you know, uh, the the class and, and economic background that they come from. And so they're going to come in with an innovation that they understand. And obviously, we, we've all we, we've expanded our understandings of other people, but um, everybody's done that to a different level. And then if you're coming into a meeting and you have a diversity of perspectives, you know, you'll have somebody who says the story doesn't resonate with my community mm-hmm. or um, I don't understand this, this, you know, the value of this, that heaven that you are identifying, that wouldn't be a heaven <laughs> for, for me. And so to be able to kind of have that collaborative process of really kind of getting to the the meat of the story that's broadly applicable um, and not just from that one person's perspective sounds like a really valuable exercise. Um, is that something that you've seen a lot? It is. I mean, you know, this is, um, this is a piece that um, we all have to take into account, right? That mm-hmm. we don't want, there, there are a couple things that happen, I think, on the innovation front. One is, we have spent so much time and effort building our baby, right? Creating our baby, mm-hmm. our beautiful new thing that that's all we want to talk about. If you've ever been around new parents, they're like, oh my God, you rolled <laughs> over today. I'm like, I did that 14 times last night. I'm not metal, you know? She twitched her elbow. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so and I think one of the other things I like telling innovators, startups and grownups alike is, um, is that your hero of the story is always the customer, is always Luke Skywalker. It is mm. not the lightsaber. Yes. Star Wars was not written about the lightsaber, mm-hmm. right? It is the history, the values, the purpose, that incredible message, right? Of may the force be with you. And then the force is what takes us into that next step. So yes, the lightsaber lightsaber will kill your father if need be. (laughs) It is not the hero of the story. And for all of us who are selling products or services, it's a reminder not to fall in love with the product. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder to fall in love with the problem that you're solving. Mm. If you constantly fall in love with the problems you will have an endless supply of innovations that will bubble up if you are an innovator because you will constantly be seeking the solutions. But if you fall in love with your baby, your innovation, then it becomes very difficult to change it and alter it, right? How does it feel when you have a baby and then your mom comes over and gives you parenting advice? It becomes harder and harder to take critical input (laughs) from other people. But when you keep reflecting on the challenges you know, then you're constantly upgrading. Then you're constantly iterating and thinking of new things as opposed to trying to protect what is your baby. Absolutely. Um, and also I would imagine, you know, there's a big difference between I have this product, this this service, this process that I've developed, and I've spent a ton of time and effort and gotten it to the point that I feel like it is ready to launch today. Mm-hmm. And now you can look at it. And somebody's going to be able to poke a hole that that brings you back to day one. So um, do you recommend when it comes to innovations, in terms of just kind of a timeline of sharing it, whether it's internally or whether it's with um, some some external partners or friends who are kind of able to validate, have you found that it's important to have 
some conversations early um, outside the the innovators to to get that alignment on the core values, on the problems that you're solving, to make sure that that you don't move forward, you know, significantly along a path that you discover later on wasn't worth it. You know, the I think the greatest shift that's taken place. Um, in the last 20 years in the innovation realm is agile. You know, whether it's mm-hmm. software development, product development, et cetera, it is very fast iterating small scale tests to see if we are in alignment um, with not only what the customer wants, but whether or not we can actually build it. Mm-hmm. And so the risk is not as great as it used to be 30, 40 years ago, where you'd say, here's here's $4 million, go see if you can build it only to find out that you couldn't, or you could build it, but you couldn't scale it, or you could build it, but nobody wanted it. Mm -hmm. So keeping things secretive um, for a very long period of time is a detriment to how it's being built. And the anthropologist in me, the ethnographer in me wants to go to those communities and ask is sit and watch how people use things, Mm -hmm. how people are, um, using things in ways that the you know were not originally intended, but could offer great value, or um, asking the questions: If this product could get you to heaven, what would it need to do? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I often refer back to that Steve Jobs, you know, thousand songs in your pocket with the iPod. The reality is, we had MP3 players before the advent of the iPod. Mm-hmm. My MP3 player also had a CD player on it and an AM FM radio. Wow. And so it also was a small brick. And I, if I was going to go jogging with it, which by the way, I don't jog, but if I were, <laughs> you were. I would have had to hold it with two hands while <laughs> I was jogging because it couldn't, it certainly couldn't fit in my pocket. But I will say this, I had access to infinite music. Mm-hmm. I had access to all of my CD collection, anything I had downloaded or stolen via Napster, <laughs> and finally, anything that was on the radio, new music discovery, serendipitous musical discovery, right? Mm-hmm. That's infinite music. That's all the music in my universe at the time. So why would I want only 1,000 songs when I could have all the songs? Mm-hmm. How did Steve Jobs manage to convince us that less is more? And so by really closely listening to the public and going, ah, I really want to make sure that I can take it with me anywhere. I don't want to feel like a dork walking around with a giant brick in front of me. I want to feel cool, i.e. my design process will be as important as my technology process. Mm. So it will be white. It will be a jewel box. It will have, you know, white air... um, Air, uh, air pods that will go in my ear, not over my head like the old Walkman style. I'm going to recreate the fashion associated with technology because I understand that's important to my audience. And then there's one other thing that comes along with great innovation, which is the DNA of the innovator, him or herself. Mm-hmm. So if you remember, the first iPods didn't have a lot of buttons, unlike my MP3 player, which had a bazillion buttons. Yep. And I loved all of them, by the way. But the first iPod had a click wheel, mm-hmm. you know, and you would move your finger around it um, in order to find your song as you scrolled through a thousand songs. And 
I often ask audiences, why did it have, why did Steve Jobs invent the click wheel or his designer, Johnny Ive rather, rather than a bazillion buttons? And if you recall, Steve Jobs wore a black turtleneck every day. Mm-hmm. And why did he do that? Yeah. Saves time, saves money, right? Makes you more productive. For sure. But he hated buttons. Mm-hmm. He hated buttoning a shirt. He thought it was the biggest waste of time. He thought it was stupid. And so when he turned to Johnny Ive and said, make me this device, use as few buttons as possible. I hate buttons. That was the preference and the DNA of Steve Jobs on the device itself. Make it beautiful, make it easy to use. And for God's sakes, don't put a button on it if you don't have to. (laughs) And wouldn't you know, that would be the precursor to what is our smartphones today that have virtually zero buttons on them. Absolutely. Anytime I I actually need to like turn my phone off or on, I have to remember how to use the three buttons that are on there because I don't use them ever. (laughs) You say that. That's exactly what I was doing. And there was a software update last night. That's exactly what I was saying. Like, how do I turn this off again? Uh, The hardest thing is like, you can figure out how to turn it off, but then you have to turn it back on. And you're like, which one do I put? I always have to go onto my computer. This is, this is so embarrassing, but I will have to Google, how do I turn my phone back on? Because I'm like pushing the buttons in a sequence. It doesn't make sense. Okay. So I can go you one level deeper on embarrassment. I recently um, downgraded my mom from my 93 year old mom from a smartphone to a flip phone because the smartphone was overwhelming to her. Mm -hmm. And she called me and said, I don't know how to hang up the phone. And it was like, you push the off button. She goes, it's not working. And I I had to get online, look at the manual and I'm like, oh, you close the phone. That's (laughs) how you hang up. I had forgotten how to hang up. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't had a flip phone in man, 20 years. So (laughs) I forgot that too. So I'm like, oh, remember the joy of hanging up on someone? Yeah, you could really get that snap. Snap. So I'll probably be getting that for my mom shortly. But in any event, you know, I, I want to say that there are parts of us falling in love with our baby, mm-hmm. right? Our innovation that also creates a unique selling proposition. Those things like I have a click wheel, look at my cool tech, will certainly be part of the reason why some people buy our technologies while some people adopt the innovation because of the how it works, mm-hmm. the things on the inside, why the glass crumbles as opposed to sticking you with shards and, you know, injuring you. So there are some people who always love the how, the engineering mind that loves figuring that out or just thinks it's cool. But it first starts with painting a picture of how life is going to be better when I don't have to jog with a brick. Absolutely. That's such a powerful example. And even, you know, I'll go back to my my long and complex story of my phone breaking, but, you know, they were able to develop the ability to have your phone screen shatter, and yet the phone is usable. It hasn't, like, the glass hasn't penetrated the inside, I don't think, you know, and it's just, like... So to be able to tell a story like that, and there's still a problem, right? My phone glass is still shattered, but to even tell a story of how it could have been worse. And this product is still valuable to Apple to buy from Corning, right? To to say, we're, we're able to provide you with this technology less likely to break, but when it breaks, it breaks well. Um, that, that to me is really important because I would imagine there are a lot of innovations where when you think about the problems, 
the problems are overall. It, it, it can become infinite, right? But to figure out and hone in on what are the specific problems that you solve and how do they even make problems you can't solve better or less painful um, could be a, a really powerful tool for an innovator to think about. Because I do see a lot of times innovators feel the need to um, boil the ocean. You know, <laughs> they they want to do too much with their offerings mm -hmm. and that can become really dangerous. Yeah, it really can. Um, it's, it's fascinating that you say that because um, I think so many times um, we get, we have a desire to hit the mass market so quickly that we don't mm -hmm. look at um, the niches that we could be conquering one after the other and understanding mm -hmm. their needs. And, you know, even the biggest companies in the world make this mistake. So, you know, one of the very famous examples is um, from Procter & Gamble. And Swiffer was such a huge success here in the United States because it saved, for the most part, women time in cleaning their, you know, their homes. You didn't have to get out the mop and the bucket and all that stuff, right? You could just Swiffer your house. It became a verb. Mm -hmm. And so when they decided to go to Italy, they did their research and found out that the average Italian woman was spending four hours cleaning her home. Oh, wow. And so they thought, oh, my God, jackpot. We are going to save we're going to give these women three and a half hours back in their day. How, who doesn't want that? And so they sold it as a time-saving device, right? Save time, saves money. Wonderful. Um, Italy routinely, I mean, just across the board rejected Swift mm -hmm. because what that, the message that was sent to those women was, Anything that could get done in a half an hour when I spend four hours laboriously and and with a lot of pride cleaning my house, clearly it doesn't work. It's not clean. Mm -hmm. Not taking four hours, it's not clean. So to lead with a message of time saving because it works so well in America is not culturally what was needed in Italy. Mm-hmm. And so even when you're bringing an in innovation, you still have to get that really deep, empathetic listening. You can't start with like, wow, you spend four hours. Great. We'll eliminate the four hours out of your day. Why do you spend four hours? Mm -hmm. How does it make you feel spending four hours cleaning your home? I feel proud. I feel like my house is clean. I feel like my children and my family can come over on mm -hmm. Sunday and they will say that my house is spotless. And instead, it had to be the deep cleaning tool mm. for the Italian market. And so it was all about how deep clean you got it. And to prove to Italian women that your house was as clean as what you were doing over four hours of time. Absolutely. I would imagine, you know, talking about things like we can get into the corners that you can't when you're kneeling on the floor and scrubbing. And exactly. with the pole, we can reach and, you know, up to high areas. You don't have to climb yeah. on a ladder. So completely different way of saying basically the same thing. Exactly. And so that's what innovation requires. That is why protons, neutrons, and electrons don't work. Unfortunately, we are humans. And the other side of it, we want the rest of the world, if we want our users, our customers to say it to other people, we have to put it in a parlance that matters to them, not mm -hmm. to us. It has to matter to them first in order for them to share it with a neighbor. And that's why that's so critical. 
That makes so much sense. And I, I feel like I learned so much as we were talking today. We were probably <laughs> talking about this forever. Um, and, uh, and all these different stories and examples and questions are popping into my head. But um, I am looking at the clock. So we'll, we'll wind this down. Maybe we'll have to bring you back about it. But um, <laughs> before we before we take another diversion, why don't I just um, ask our second to last question we always end with is what are some resources that you might recommend to our listeners? It could be very specifically on the topic of innovation and innovation storytelling or, you know, anything else that you think would be valuable for them. Well, um, well, let's see. So to get started, you can always check out my website, um, which is susanlindner.com. And there you can check out backslash podcasts. So I have a podcast as well. It's called Innovation Storytellers, where I invite our generation's greatest storytellers to come on and talk about not only their innovations, but what are the stories they told in order to get venture capital funding, in order to get funding from the board, from the CEO? And how did they convince the engineers to make their cool new thing or shift a process internally when the rest of the company was like, we are not changing how we're doing business today? So um, there are leaders from Tesla and Amazon and Corning and GE, Indeed.com, TD Ameritrade, all of those guests, they're all the heads of innovation of those companies who come in and talk about how they get innovation done at the Fortune 500 level. Um, And it comes out every Tuesday, Innovation Storytellers, and you can find it on my website. So I'd start there. I also have some colleagues um, who I just love the work that they do and I love promoting their work. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a guy named Park Howell who has a fantastic podcast and a consulting practice called The Business of Story. I love his work. Um, And also another um, innovation storyteller, Jean Storley, who wrote Once Upon an Innovation. And her work is focused on how to incorporate storytelling when you have the idea for a new innovation. So it's all throughout the production process. Mm. My process is a little bit more on the tail end. Once the innovation is created, then how do how do we get the rest of the company on board? Once we have the idea, how do we get the rest of the company on board to make our cool new thing? That makes so much sense, and um, sounds like a sounds like a great book. I haven't read that one, so um, have to check it out. There you go. Our right. book will be coming out this fall, which is called Innovation Storytelling: How to Get the Resources, Runway, and Recognition You Deserve. So incredibly important. <laughs> um, all right. Well, if before they read your book in the fall, um, if you want people to learn more about you and your work, in addition to the podcast, where should they go? They should follow me on LinkedIn. Everything gets posted there. So it's just Susan Linder on LinkedIn. And um, I would love to connect with you. Feel free to reach out and connect. And I would happily add you to my network. We have an email newsletter as well that goes out about all things innovation storytelling. Wonderful. Well, I have so, so enjoyed our conversation today, Susan, and we'll probably bring you back once your book comes out so we can can talk about it then. Um, But it's been so fun talking to you today. Likewise. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything Susan and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 309. Make sure to tune into the podcast next week if you enjoyed the conversation. And we would love it if you would share it with a listener. So um, feel free to, to do that. That's the best way to help more people discover the show. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure to do that wherever you're listening so you'll get every new episode as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free in any platform that you prefer. 
We love to hear feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or email us if you've got questions, guest suggestions, feedback at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling!